I'm now joined by Rob Arnott, founder of and chairman of the board for Research Affiliates, who currently powers the index behind 36 ETFs globally with some $51 billion invested. That includes ETFs from Invesco, Charles Schwab, PIMCO, and overall about $130 billion in assets are managed worldwide using investment strategies developed by research affiliates. And Rob is now joining me via phone from Miami. Rob, so great having you back on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Wonderful to have a chance to visit. Okay, so I was looking back. Uh, you last joined me in February of 2021, and I'm sure you'll recall that was right around the peak of the mania in uh, SPACs and crypto, uh, meme stocks. And I actually want to start by playing a clip for you from that conversation. Let me tee this up real quick. Look, this environment looks very, very much like uh, the uh, bubble of 2000. It's It's not even like uh, a year before the bubble burst. It's it's right at early 2000 in terms of market behavior. We we actually defined the term bubble a couple of years ago in a way that can be used in real time, which is important because most people use the word long after the fact, saying, oh, that was a bubble. Um, our definition is really simple. If you're using a discounted cash flow model or a, some other simple valuation model, you would have to make implausible assumptions to justify today's price. And second part of the definition, just as important, the marginal buyer doesn't care about valuation models. Okay. What assumptions would you have to make to justify GameStop at 400? Pretty implausible. Does the marginal buyer today care? No, it's either a short covering their shorts or it's a, a retail speculator speculating on short sellers covering their shorts. All right. So that was perfect. You said the environment in February 2021 looked very much like the bubble in the uh, early 2000s. And now we can look back, right, some two and a half years later and say, obviously, you were spot on with stocks like GameStop and certainly with uh, crypto. And we also talked about uh, the ARK ETFs later in that conversation. Those are down big, unprofitable tech. But here's my question for you. So you, you were clearly right on those uh, frothy areas. But if we look at the broader markets, I, I ran these numbers yesterday. So the S&P 500 is actually up about 21% since our conversation. The NASDAQ is up about 17%. And certainly there have been some sizable drawdowns uh, in between, especially last year. But the bottom has never really uh, fallen out of the broader markets. And so I'd love to have you just assess the current market environment versus the one we saw back in uh, February 2021 when we last visited. You know, it's funny. Uh, listening to those comments in February 2021, my initial instinct is is to say, uh, you know, whatever he said back in February 2021, I'd say the same thing today. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> we've had a uh, remarkable triple peak in uh, tech different names at each peak, but the summer of 2020, the end of 2021, and the summer of 2023, all three of those represented periods of time when uh, tech had surged, different names of tech in each of the surges, but tech had surged to comparative valuation levels that were uh, near or at all-time 
highs relative to the market. Now, the tech bubble itself in 2020 was the granddaddy of them all in terms of absolute valuation levels. But relative to the market, we've had a triple peak. And uh, today is yet another of those peaks. So I look at this, and I think uh, we, we wrote a paper a few weeks ago entitled um, The AI NVIDIA Singularity, Breakthrough, Bubble, or Both. And just to cut to the chase, our conclusion was it's both. It's a breakthrough. AI is the real deal. It's very, very important. It's very, very powerful. Uh, the narrative is a little ahead of the reality. Um, uh, in some areas, AI is absolute amateur hour and uh, dangerous to use. Uh, in other areas, it's it's um, remarkably powerful and better than most human beings. So uh, it's uh, it's the real deal. But we've had tech revolutions in the past that were the real deal. And ultimately, what's often over, overlooked is that the biggest beneficiaries of tech revolutions are their customers. Their shareholders, unless they were early shareholders, usually aren't. And they usually aren't for the very simple reason that um, uh, Brad Cornell coined the expression big company, big, big market delusion, where investors start to think that everyone involved in this arena are going to be wildly successful. They overlook the fact that, firstly, um, they're competing against one another. They won't all succeed. Secondly, there will be newcomers that aren't even on the radar screen yet. And those newcomers, some of them will be big players and will crowd out the existing players. And so all of that tends to be overlooked, creating a bubble, which, as I noted in that previous uh, 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 taping, was best defined as a situation where you have to use implausible assumptions to justify today's prices. Well, that's true of many of the FANG Plus stocks. Now, here's another factoid that uh, I find absolutely remarkable. If you look at the 10 largest market cap stocks in the world, uh, the top seven are U.S. tech companies. The next uh, six are U.S. non-tech companies. And 19 of the top 20 stocks in the world in terms of market value are U.S. companies. 19 out of 20. I've never seen concentration that intense. I've never seen concentration at the top as intense as 7 out of 7 being U.S. tech. Now, I'm liberally using the term tech. Um, is meta uh, social media or tech? Well, their competitive advantage is tech. Is Amazon a retailer or tech? Its competitive advantage is tech. So I'm liberally using the term tech, but seven out of seven at the top, all U.S. tech companies, 19 out of 20, all U.S. companies. Pardon me, is the rest of the world completely dead economically? Hardly. So I look at this as an example of huge concentration in the U.S., huge concentration within the U.S. in U.S. tech, meaning that those stocks are priced for perfection and the U.S. market is priced relative to the rest of the world for something approaching perfection. 
well, to me, this this means that the opportunities are very clear and very clearly elsewhere. To, to your point, let, let me ask you this. So, obviously, if you look at the largest tech companies and, and just growth stocks in general, they've really powered the S&P 500, especially those, sure. those top 10, right? Those top 10 holdings in the S&P 500 make up something like 33% of that index. But, right. you know, NASDAQ is up big. And I'm just curious why you think growth has performed so well this year? Does it go back to the AI mania you were speaking of? Because I, I want to give you a couple of just very quick data points, which I know you're very well aware of. But if you look at just very simple growth and value ETFs. So, for example, if I look at the Vanguard growth ETF, ticker VUG, and compare that to the Vanguard value ETF, ticker VTV, there's a 32% performance spread there this year. If I look at the iShares Russell 1000 growth, IWF versus iShares Russell 1000 value, IWD, 28% spread. So what's driven that? Because I feel like the narrative coming into the year was that value would continue to uh, outperform after it seemed to turn the corner in 2022, but that hasn't happened. So so why is that? Uh, The the catalyst for this, of course, was the AI revolution. ChatGPT opened people's eyes to the possibilities of... um, AI. Uh, I'll give a couple of specific examples. When ChatGPT4 was first released, <clears throat> I asked it to write a um, short bedtime story uh, with uh, knights in shining armor and unicorns. And it wrote a 500-word um, short bedtime story that uh, any, any writer of children's books would have been proud to say, I wrote that. It was brilliant. And then I asked it to write a short bio on me, and I never knew that um, I graduated from the University of Chicago with an MBA (laughs) and that I started my career at Goldman Sachs. Both of those were pure fabrications. So in one case, it did an extraordinary job. In another case, it was catastrophically bad. Um, and people have gotten in trouble using uh, uh, ChatGPT to write papers because it, it, it makes things up out of whole cloth. So it's um, not ready for prime time, but it, it opened people's eyes to the possibilities. Are you a graphic artist? Uh-oh, if you're not really good at it, um, you'd better learn how to use AI because AI will... Uh, you won't lose your job to AI. Nobody will lose their job to AI. They'll lose their job to somebody who knows how to use AI. If you're a graphic artist, if you're a computer programmer, you'd better learn how to use these tools. They're really powerful. Um, If you are a um, a cab driver or a limo driver from the airport, you're going to be supplanted, not necessarily in the next five years, but in, in the coming decade or so, you'll be supplanted by uh, AI-driven vehicles. And so it's going to be transformative. But uh, as with all tech revolutions, this will create more jobs than it destroys. That's People look at the jobs that are going to be destroyed and wring their hands. Um, pardon me. Uh, did TV destroy jobs? Did the computer destroy jobs? Did the Internet destroy jobs? Oh, my goodness, yes. Every single one of those is true. Did it create a lot of new jobs? Of course. Do we miss the jobs that were destroyed? No, we do not. That's an observation that is 
just completely overlooked. And so the jobs that will be destroyed will never be missed a generation after they're gone. Um, so the AI revolution was the catalyst for this surge. But is the reality going to match the hype? Not likely. Is the reality going to exceed the hype? Well, you need the reality to exceed the hype in order for prices to rise from current levels. In other words, um, top companies in the U.S. stock market will outperform the U.S. stock market only if they exceed lofty expectations. Is that likely from today's expectation levels? Not really. Another thing that we've looked at in the past is what happens to top ten names. We looked at top ten world market capitalization stocks going back to 1980 and asked what happened over the next decade. Every single top ten list in the last half century, uh, only two or three of the names survived on the list ten years later. Seven or eight were gone. Uh, only one or two beat the market over the next 10 years. Eight or nine underperformed. Now, there have been times when the one or two that won won big enough to mean that that top 10 list was collectively beat the market, but that's very rare in terms of calendar decades that only happened in the 2010s. The only two winners in the 2010s from the uh, list at the start of the decade, the only two that still survived on the list were Apple and Microsoft, but they rose from the bottom of the list to the top of the list, and as a result, the, the list itself beat the market. But that's the only decade where that was true. In most decades, companies at the top are targets. They're targeted by competitors. They're targeted by regulators. They stop being the upcoming good guy who everybody admires and start being the predatory bad guy the very competitive behaviors that put them on top are suddenly treated as predatory. And so top companies, because everyone's gunning for them, usually don't exceed lofty expectations. But just in terms of growth versus value moving forward, and I certainly hear what you're saying in terms of this potential that the reality um, doesn't exceed the hype in AI-related companies and, and tech and growth overall. But we keep hearing that value is not dead and investors simply need to stay patient. But as you know, investors, you know, they've been let down year after year if they've taken a the value yeah. approach. So so what changes that moving forward? Well, they have been let down, and, and they haven't. Um, if you embraced a, a pivot to value in the summer of 2020, um, you're still ahead of uh, those who stuck with the frothy growth names at the time, but not by much. Um, and relative valuation does matter long term. If value is priced to reflect expectations that lots of these companies are irrelevant and many of them will go bust, uh, all they have to do to beat the market is to uh, exceed bleak expectations which is pretty easy to do. On the growth end of the spectrum, when it gets this frothy, what they have to do to 
beat the market uh, is to exceed lofty expectations, and that's a tall order. The thing that's interesting is um, if people uh, see a store and things are on sale, um, they'll go in and they'll be very excited because of the lower prices. When it comes to investments, when the prices are down, the enthusiasm evaporates, and it evaporates for a very simple reason. Bargains become bargains by dint of creating pain and losses on the way there. And nobody wants to embrace pain and say, give me more of that. But the simple reality is um, uh, anything that's newly frothy and overpriced got there by creating joy and profit. And people don't want to walk away from that. So investing sensibly uh, always involves a dose of discomfort. Um, this is the this is the challenge of contrarian investing. You're always uh, investing in a direction that is is profoundly uncomfortable and uh, at odds with human nature. Now, what does that mean? Think in terms of margin of safety. The magnificent seven the seven largest market cap stocks in the world, the seven largest in the U.S. These seven companies are world-straddling colossi. They're enormously successful, enormously powerful. But um, the, whoever coined the expression Magnificent Seven must not have seen the movie, because at the end of the movie, four of the seven are dead, and the inspiration for that movie was Seven Samurai, where the outcome's even worse. So, um, which which three of the seven do we think will be the survivors ten years from now? Uh, I wouldn't want to guess, but I would very comfortably guess that most of them are going to be big underperformers in the coming decade, not because they're bad companies, they're brilliant companies but because they're going to face competitive headwinds that they didn't expect or new up-and-comers that they didn't know were lurking in the background. I mean, NVIDIA uh, at the peak in 2020 wasn't on anyone's radar screen. Now, it's been around. It was, it was um, uh, a, one of the frothy tech names in the year 2000. It just wasn't in the top 20. Um, so it wasn't really noticed back in the year 2000. It's been around a long time. Uh, it creates the plumbing for AI, and that's the narrative. That was also the narrative for Qualcomm and Cisco in 2000. Both of those stocks are um, a little ahead of where they were in the year 2000, but miles behind the S&P. Qualcomm's a, a great example um, Qualcomm was the most highest-performing stock in 1999, up 2,700% in a single year. It was priced at 280 times earnings. It was going to be powering the Internet for decades to come. How has it done as a business? Phenomenally well. Profits last year were uh, 59 times what they were in 2000. It's up 59-fold in profits. Well, it must have performed well. No, it's up less than 100% since the year 2000, and it's 50% behind the S&P since 2000. 50%. So 
um, that's a company that performed brilliantly but was expected to perform even more brilliantly. I think we've got a bunch of those right now. Rob, with uh, growth and, and value, how does the Fed play into all this, if at all? I think we would all agree they waited way too long to raise rates a couple of years ago. And I think went- negative interest, real interest rates and near zero nominal interest rates are always a catastrophic mistake. They they created this mess, and now we expect the same idiots who created the mess to fix it. So what happens? How do you see them pursuing policy moving forward? Do you think they're going to wait too long? They're going to keep interest rates elevated for too long? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Firstly, uh, a worthy question is, what should they do? And they always claim to be data dependent, but the data that they're focusing on moves from meeting to meeting. Uh, The data that they never mention they look at is the long bond yield. Now, the long bond yield is set by the market, by supply and demand, by bid and ask. And the uh, long end of the market, of the bond market, uh, tells us what the market thinks is a fair rate of interest for long-term debt. What is a rate of interest? It's a reward for deferring consumption. Should you be rewarded for deferring consumption? Yes. The yield should be positive and positive in real terms. Should you be rewarded more for deferring consumption longer? Yes. The yield curve should be positively sloped, almost always. So if you take those as uh, as um, uh, a guiding light that tells you what Fed policy ought to be, the Fed policy ought to be, look at the long rate. Okay, it's currently in the high fours. Um, think in terms of um, the short rate ought to be less, but not a lot less. That would suggest maybe three and a half to four. When um, Fed funds was at zero, uh, long bond yields were typically around three. That tells you that the Fed ought to have been charging two not zero. And today, with elevated inflation and elevated long rates, um, ought to be charging three and a half or four, not five and a half. And so this tells us that the Fed is um, uh, out of touch with reality. The reality is that interest rates are a speed bump to discourage malinvestment, misallocation of resources, propping up of zombie businesses, and a reward for um, deferred consumption, which has to be positive and positive in real terms, but not positive enough to discourage uh, investment in long-horizon ideas. And viewed in that context, Fed policy should be very simple and doesn't require a committee of wise people. Uh, It merely requires... Uh, a very simple posing of the question, what's the long bond tell us is the appropriate rate? Um, Australia has been called the lucky country because it avoided recession for 30 years. Well, if you look at their central bank policy, uh, the RBA kept the short rate below the long rate, but not much below it, for 25 of those 30 years. The one exception was in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. They briefly took rates to a very, very low level, as did the rest of the world. Um, It's only in the late 2010s that they got with the 
global fed religion of we can micromanage the economy which is complete rubbish and um, I think set Australia up to uh, suffer a recession along with the rest of the world when things uh, fell apart in 2020. Okay, Rob, so with all of that uh, as the backdrop, with our remaining time, I I do want to briefly talk about the smart beta ETF landscape and uh, your fundamental indexing approach, which that now has a live performance track record going on, what, 18-plus years? Is that correct? That's exactly right. Pretty remarkable. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, we did a paper early this year uh, called Raffi Rocks that looked at the performance of Raffi through a somewhat different lens. Um, uh, we've long had the view that fundamental index is a better way to index. It weights companies by how big they are, not by how popular and beloved and expensive they are. Uh, It has an inherent structural rebalancing alpha. If a stock gets ahead of itself, we'll be trimming. And if the market got it wrong and the stock reverses, we pick up alpha because we trimmed. Um, The opposite happens in the opposite direction. We also um, noted that Graphy has a very large, very stark value tilt because you're de-emphasizing all the growth names. You're re-emphasizing all the value names. The deeper the value stock is, uh, the more we overweight relative to the cap-weighted market. So empirically, the better benchmark for Raffi is a value index. In fact, the, the tracking error of U.S. Raffi relative to Russell 1000 uh, is about 5%, meaning in an average year you'll vary by about 5% from that index. Compared to Russell value, it's 2.5%. So the the benchmark uh, should be a value index, uh, even though Rafi itself is also suitable as a broad market index. So we looked at it relative to value. What did we find? We found that in the 16 years (coughs) of the value route from 2007 to 2020 and its aftermath through year-end 22, that Raffi had beat the value, Russell value, by 5,000 basis points, 50 percentage points. It had had done so with 2% tracking error. It had done so with no underperformance peak to trough that was worse than 2.5% ever. It had done so with no underperforming two-year spans ever. Once in a while, an underperforming one-year span. No two-year spans. So we published Raffi Rocks. More recently, we published Rocking with Raffi Around the World that did the same tests all over the world and found the same results all over the world. So viewed as a market uh, strategy, it's a very powerful tool. Viewed as a substitute for value, it is a remarkable tool. And so what we find is, uh, uh, well, I would invite the question, is there a better value strategy on the planet that has more success over time and across multiple geographies than RAFI? I don't think there is. And if you have value in your portfolio, why on earth wouldn't you do it by way of using Raffi, at least for the value segment of your portfolio? 
Um, so this is this is something that I think is just a lot of fun. The deeper you dive, the more interesting it gets. Just a couple of minutes left here. here. Here's the question that I'll pose to you on uh, Rafi. So I mentioned at the top that Research Affiliates is currently behind uh, 36 ETFs globally. That includes 28 here in the U.S. So uh, for listeners, for example, the Schwab Fundamental U.S. Large Company Index ETF, ticker FNDX, uh, the Invesco FTSE Rafi U.S. 1000 ETF PRF, those are the two uh, or two of the largest. And Look, these would fall under the quote-unquote smart beta ETF category, which I don't believe smart beta is necessarily your favorite term, or at least you don't feel... I liked the term early on, but then it was embraced by the entire market right. attached to all kinds of ideas, some smart and some profoundly stupid. So, so my question is, how do you view, again, that quote-unquote smart beta ETF landscape overall? Because it seems like traditional active ETFs are garnering a lot of the headlines. I, I would say smart beta has sort of faded to the background at the moment. And yeah. so how do you assess the current health of the smart beta uh, landscape, and what, what, what does the future look like here? Well... Smart beta is, is a label which has lost all uh, meaning. It's been attached to everything. So let's set aside smart beta. Um, disciplined quantitative ETFs uh, can be smart beta or stupid beta. Uh, multi-factor strategies. In 2016, I wrote a paper, How Can Smart Beta Go Horribly Wrong? And I pointed out that just like a stock can get ahead of its fundamentals or behind, um, a strategy can get expensive or inexpensive relative to its own norms. And if you take something like quality, quality is very popular today. Quality is expensive today. If you take a look at low beta, uh, low beta strategies were wildly popular in 2016 and got extraordinarily expensive. And the consequence was they underperformed horrifically afterwards. Today, the vast majority of factors are trading cheap relative to historic norms, which to me means today is a brilliant time to embrace multi-factor, a brilliant time to to embrace value because value is cheap, not necessarily a brilliant time to, to embrace quality because quality is very popular. And certainly not a good time to embrace tech because tech is off the charts expensive these days. So I look at the relative valuation opportunities and think that the smart beta landscape has lots of good ideas that are trading abnormally cheap. Back in 2016 when we wrote How Can Smart Beta Go Horribly Wrong, lots of factor strategies and smart beta strategies were trading rich relative to their historic norms. And we saw... um, a world of hurt coming, and that world of hurt has spoiled the landscape. So people don't want to hear the words smart beta anymore, don't want to hear the words factor investing anymore. And now, now factors are cheap, many smart beta strategies are cheap, value is cheap, RAFI is extraordinarily cheap, representing just a terrific uh, spectrum of opportunities. Well, Rob, with that, uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Really enjoyed the conversation and certainly hearing your uh, market perspective. Really appreciate you taking the time this week. Thank you for joining me. This has been great fun, as always. All the best. That was Rob Arnott, founder of and chairman of the board for Research Affiliates.